I was once at a training in which the facilitator talked about her parents' struggle with their son. They had adopted him when he was about five or six, and there had been many trying times. And the point and the moment of this story took place when he was a teenager. They had been struggling in their relationship. They had been not getting along. A lot of the words that go back and forth between teenagers and parents were shared over and over again. Those of you who are parents of teenagers or who have been may know those words that I'm talking about. And they were at their wit's end. They tried all of the things. They tried taking away his things that he loved. He tried making deals, bargaining, and none of it really seemed to work. They didn't know what to do. They were at their wit's end. And they don't know how it started. They don't know who gave them this idea, but they'd been reading more about the way the brain had worked in children in the developing mind, and they decided that they were going to try a real radical experiment. They were going to become a no-trouble household. A no-trouble household. That means that whatever happened in the household, whatever actions occurred, whatever things went on, no one was going to get in trouble. Now, making a declaration that you are going to become a no-trouble household is, of course, a little different than actually living that out. I think we've all tried to shift our behaviors and found that our old behaviors are pretty close under the surface. And this was tested a few days later after this solemn declaration of their no trouble status when they discovered that their son had been waking up in the middle of the night and going and playing Xbox for hours. He would get up around two in the morning when everyone else was asleep and he would sit there and play video games until about four or five and go back to sleep and then be very, very irritable and very, very difficult to deal with before he went to school. One morning they found this out. They asked how long it had been going on for, and he said it had been going on for some time. And they were about to take away the Xbox. They were about to install the alarms on his door to make sure that he couldn't leave his room in the middle of the night. When they remembered their commitment, they were a no trouble household after all. And so they decided that they would do nothing but ask a question, why? Why was he finding himself awake at two in the morning? Why would he go downstairs to play video games once he was awoken? Now this question opened the window to a beautiful shift because what they found was that he often woke in the middle of the night filled with anxiety. Memories from the past week, memories from times beyond their time together, fears for the next day, for the next week, they filled him and visited him in his bed. And it made him going back to sleep seem impossible. And so he would rise and do what he felt would help would help calm his anxiety, something to take his mind off of it so that he wouldn't be visited by those ghosts and those demons in that moment, which was, of course, to play 
video games. Once they heard the why, they realized that their former selves would have found the punishment, right? Would have tried to control the behavior. And instead, they tried something different. They didn't stop him from waking up in the morning. They didn't lock the Xbox or turn off the TV. But they did work with him to find some other ways to deal with his anxiety. Some practices he could take up in the middle of the night that would help him calm the body and go back to sleep. Now, it took a long time. It took a long time to replace that behavior. But there was a shift in the quality of the experience of the house because they weren't constantly fighting. They actually were on the same side. Because he too would admit, not in all moments, but in some, that when he didn't get a good night's sleep, he wasn't the best person in the morning. He didn't show up for his friends or his schoolwork the way he wanted to. And so bit by bit, being a no-trouble household paid its reward. The anxiety moved down. A way forward was unlocked. Now, being a no-trouble household didn't mean glossing over the harm, but it did, it did mean committing to not adding to it. So often when we hurt one another, when we deviate from the norms, when we get in trouble with each other or with the law or in our larger communities, the way we respond adds harm to harm. When people cross a line and do harm, our first impulse is to remove them from community so they might not do any more harm. From timeouts for children to suspensions in school to the incarceration of individuals, we find ways to remove community from harm. And yet, paradoxically, it is in the moments that we have done harm to one another that we need community more than ever. Our punitive frameworks are so built into our bodies, into our society, that when you break the rules, you should be punished because what else would help you follow the rules next time other than consequences, other than getting in trouble? These punitive frameworks always punish the symptom, of course, rather than address the causes of that symptom. As Adrienne Marie Brown writes, punishment can only address what has happened on the surface level. We all mess up. We all cause harm. This sermon, this homily takes that for granted. So if you're one of those people that doesn't believe that we all mess up, that we all cause harm, the leave meeting button is somewhere down here that you can click it because this may not be the sermon for you. Sorry, not sorry, as the kids would say. Our culture is at the beginning of our journey in our capacity to recognize our full humanness, which includes that shadow side, that shadow side that we find hard to acknowledge or speak about because of the way it is wielded. In some ways, we construct our world as if there are bad people that exist over here, those people who do harm, and there are good people over here. 
The good people might slip up from time to time, but they don't do harm. It's the people over there, the bad people, that do the harm, right? It's the people that need to be punished over there that do the harm. We don't often speak with our friends, with our families, with our beloveds about the harm that we cause. It's difficult. We're not given the tools, the practices, the inner and outer staminas, the questions, the ways of receiving each other. I know how to, I know how to listen to you talk about a pain or the harm that was caused to you, but it is more difficult for me to receive someone when they're talking about the harm that they caused someone else. Without speaking of it or giving us the tools to deal with it, too often we internalize this messing up in the form of shame. I wonder if you ever felt that. Like you're the only person in the world who is messed up like you have. Or maybe when you do mess up, the, you were struck with the weight of your aloneness in that moment. Somehow you become unlovable and feel as if your aloneness will go on forever. Nathaniel Shara, a queer South Asian trauma therapist and writer who often works with people who have survived violence and with those who have caused harm, writes this, shame is different than guilt. While guilt focuses on our behaviors, I did something bad, shame creates an identity, I am bad. Shame keeps us stuck, isolated and hiding with no way of escape from the totality of our belief. I, I just am wrong. We find many ways to cope. We hide what we feel. We hide what we feel is bad about ourselves and try to try hard to pass it on as good or pass as good. We overcompensate in other parts of our lives through overworking, caretaking, or perfectionism to make up for what we know is wrong with us inside. We defend ourselves from any insinuations that we might have done wrong, attempt to rationalize or justify our actions. We blame someone else trying to divest responsibility or shift the focus on another. We attack anyone who draws attention towards the source of our shame trying to have the power by dominating or shaming others, or we sometimes numb through self-harm, use of substances, food, sex, technology, and so on. And yet, Nathaniel writes, in order to move from shame towards accountability, towards repair, towards that wholeness and healing that we know is possible, that our universalist faith says is open and available to all of us in this life, we need to believe that safety, connection, and dignity are possible for us on the other side. I'll say that again. For us to move through shame, towards accountability and healing, we need to believe that safety, connection, and dignity are possible for us on the other side. If we cannot reveal what we have done or what, ha what was done to us without being seen as inferior, damaged, tainted, broken, monstrous, irreparable, and so on, then out of a core human drive towards dignity, we will not do it. Maybe 
like me, you see yourself in that statement. Therapist and author Harriet Lerner writes, if, it, if identity, who you are, is equated with your worst behaviors, you will not accept responsibility or access genuine feelings of sorrow because to do so would invite feelings of worthlessness. How can we apologize for something we are rather than something we did? The punitive way that we deal with harm in our society that says harm must be punished shows up in our relationships and it doesn't give us the safety required to admit when we do harm. When harm is only done by bad people rather than harm being fundamentally human. We are a promise-making, promise-breaking, promise-remaking people after all. I mean, think about it. Think about a time that you messed up. When you truly messed up and hurt or harmed another person. Think about that moment. How different would it have been? Is after the harm was done, you knew that you would be safe and supported, loved and not shamed for that action as you walked through the process of repairing and accounting for the harms you caused. How different would it have been for you if you were able to feel loved and supported as you did the work of piecing the parts back together? Transformative justice is a movement that is aimed at correcting our society's reliance on punitive systems and instead shift ourselves to find that world in which we can walk with one another in love and connection even after harm. As activist Mia Mingus says, transformative justice is how we respond to harm so there is not more harm committed. It's a way of responding to violence from within our communities that don't rely on systems of violence like policing, like incarceration. It's a form of justice, as Adrian Marie Brown writes, that requires us to have an eye towards changing the conditions from which the wrongdoing emerged in the first place. It requires our empathy that if we were in the same situation, we might take we might have taken the same action. I think that's hard for us when we look at all the harm that is done in this world to say that if we were in the same situation, we might have done the same thing. But when we follow the why, when we dig down to the roots of the situation, all of the causes that have occurred to bring someone to a moment of harm, when we listen with our hearts and minds open to the stories of those who have harmed others, usually we find structural and long-term injustice, trauma, sexism, racism, child abuse, fear and shame at the heart of most wrongdoings. I was thinking of this this week as I was grieving the loss of life in Atlanta, the eight people who have died, 
after a white gunman targeted mostly Asian women who worked in massage parlors and nail salons. I asked myself in the face of this violence, what would transformative justice ask? Transformative justice that would commit not to add harm onto harm, that would look, would ask us to follow the why of the situation, to pull down to the roots that caused this problem. After reading many activists from the Asian American community speak about this lens of transformative justice, these are the questions that rose to my heart and mind. Transformative justice would ask us what our collective culpability for hatred, for bias, for fetishization towards Asian women and body and sex workers, how we are all culpable for creating that society. It would ask us to think about how past immigration laws, which taxed and limited Asian, Ameri Asian peoples from coming to this country and saw Asian women as dangerous, contributed to the violence we saw. It would ask us to ask how were whiteness and maleness, the ways that we don't teach self-regulation and emotional management to white men, how does that play into the cause of this violence? What is our role to play? And what of the shame that many evangelical Christians and evangelical Christian communities heap upon each other for having sexual desire, which we know is a fundamentally human characteristic. What does it mean of that shame contributing to this violence? Now, there was a call from many people for more policing in the Asian American communities. And yet more policing wouldn't give men more self-regulation skills. It wouldn't decrease the shame that conservative Christians beat into the hearts of their subjects about normal sexual desires. It won't challenge the assumptions about Asian women or sex workers and how their autonomy shouldn't be respected because of their assumed or actual profession. It won't change the Hollywood representation of Asians as sneaky, cruel, unfeeling. Asian men as not sexual and Asian women as hypersexual. In these moments of pain and grief, these questions arise because they invite a greater imaginatory, which sees one act as but a symptom of a larger system that we need to reach down and uproot for the harm to truly be transformed. Adrian Mew Brown provides three steps to pivot towards a transformative justice lens. The shifts that we make within us to orient ourselves differently, three shifts that we can use with one another when harm arises in our communities. The first step is to follow the why, to dive below the surface past punishment towards understanding the conditions of the wrongdoing. This question the question of why leads us to harder truths that are usually structural and long-term because that is of course at the heart of most of the harm. It asks us then too to contemplate what can be learned. What lessons does this have for us and how we live together? And then it asks us three, how can I be a part of the transformation? Notice this doesn't ask who should be blamed. 
Notice this doesn't ask who should be punished. It asks us to follow to the roots of what happened to understand what we can learn and how we, the collective and the individual can be a part of that transformation. I put out onto our Foothills Facebook group a question. I said, hey, I want to talk about harm that we caused. Does anyone have a story that they might want to share on Sunday? And it might have been because I put it out on Thursday. It wasn't enough notice, but I didn't hear from anyone. So I pivoted. I said, hey, I know this is hard to talk about. You might not want to go on camera to share about a moment you messed up. But maybe if we do it anonymously, we can hear the stories of one another doing harm because... It's through those stories that breaks the shame. One member of our community wrote this. I think it's a beautiful exploration of the work of transformative justice, of going to the roots of a situation for accounting and for moving from just feeling sorry to actually doing sorry. Because feeling bad about a situation doesn't make us more capable of stopping our harmful behavior, nor does it give us the skills. But doing sorry means taking those intentional actions towards repair, to finding self-accountability, the work that we can do independently of the person we have harmed, doing our inner work. So a member of our community wrote this, and I ask you to send them some love for their vulnerability in sharing this. I shared information about my child with a relative because I was processing my feelings about it and not being mindful of right speech. My relative then shared it through the extended family to the immediate immense upset of my child. I apologized immediately, which did not repair the damage, which could not be undone. I examined deeply and repeatedly the dynamic that led me to share something I should have held private. I looked for how the poor boundary or boundaries around information holding has played out in my life elsewhere, how my extended family member and I both share the poor boundary conditioning. I questioned how I got Im implanted in the first place. I needed to know that dynamic, where it came from, what it felt like in the midst of arising if I was going to be able to change it. I worked on accepting the damage I had caused and the separation that my child insisted on holding for their own protection for many, many months. I accepted it as necessary for healing rather than punishment or proof that I was a terrible person. Trying to hold compassion and forgiveness for myself was key to allowing my child to have their reaction and to find their own path to acceptance which took far longer than I would have guessed or felt good about. I had to become mindful of my impulses under stress, change my own behaviors. The wound has healed mostly over time. It cannot be made completely right or undone, but we have both grown through accepting that it happened and learned that trust can be rebuilt. Perfection is not a requirement for participation in restoring the harm. And forgiveness doesn't mean that the harm is over, but it does mean we are working through not letting what happened control what might happen in the future. I'm gonna invite us into a time led by Reverend Elaine of prayer and contemplation, inviting us into a litany of atonement in which we can recognize those moments that we have fallen short 
and commit to forgiving ourselves and each other, which of course doesn't mean that the harm doesn't continue, that the harm is over, but that we won't let it define what we do next. So I invite you into this time of prayer and contemplation. 